What? 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 I know how we can run everybody out of Rock Creek. How? We'll kill the firstborn male child in every household. Too Jewish. Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Rabbi Jeffrey Salkin, author of the new book, Tikkun Ha'am, Repairing Our People, Israel, the Crisis of Liberal Judaism. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish Radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. I watched the Leonard Bernstein biopic film Maestro last week with Bradley Cooper playing the conductor and composer. The movie generated some controversy for a couple of reasons. The two leads, first of all, Bradley Cooper, who got the film made in the first place and co-wrote and directed and produced it, and Carrie Mulligan, as his wife Felicia, portrayed Jewish characters in the movie, but are, of course, not Jewish, a trend in films we have watched with some amusement and some frustration. Secondly, Bradley Cooper uses a prosthetic nose throughout the film to make him resemble Bernstein more closely, a point that has been noted as being, well, uh, slightly stereotyping, maybe even vaguely anti-Semitic. Anyway, while we don't actually review movies much on Too Jewish, I have to tell you it's a fairly good film, although it's really mostly about the relationship between the first great American-born classical music conductor and his wife, and the complexities of Leonard Bernstein, who is both clearly and actively homosexual, and generally speaking, a devoted husband and father to his three children. Judaism and Jewishness play an important role in the film, I guess. Bernstein's mentors and friends are nearly all great Jewish musicians, directors, and songwriters of the mid-20th century, like Aaron Copland, Serge Kusevitsky, Betty Comden Adolph Green, and Jerome Robbins, and his own Jewishness as an impediment to advancement in the stratified world of classical music is explored. But, of course, Leonard Bernstein was a musical, educational, television, and theatrical phenomenon, a kind of musical meteor who taught Americans to love and understand classical music through the new medium of television, composed the scores for On the Town, West Side Story, and Candide, wrote the film score for On the Waterfront, directed the New York Philharmonic Orchestra for some 10 years in its best period ever, was central to the development of Tanglewood, perhaps the most prestigious summer music program in America, and wrote deeply moving works like the Chichester Psalms, Mass, and Kaddish. He recorded over 400 albums and was one of the best-known Americans of the middle decades of the 20th century. Bernstein was also an important social activist and philanthropist on the right side of many good causes over the years of his substantial, well, even great fame. Leonard Bernstein famously conducted Mahler's Resurrection Symphony to mark the death of President John F. Kennedy, and in Israel at a world-famous concert, Hatikva on Mount Scopus, just after the Six-Day War, which was made into a film, Journey to Jerusalem. 
But even long before 1967, in 1947, Bernstein conducted in Tel Aviv for the first time, beginning a lifelong association with the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra, then known as the Palestine Symphony Orchestra before the Declaration of Independence of Israel. The next year, Bernstein conducted an open-air concert for Israeli troops at Beersheba in the middle of the desert during the War of Independence for Israel. In 1957, he conducted the inaugural concert at the Mann Auditorium in Tel Aviv. This film, Maestro, breathlessly portrays a lot of this. Well, not the Kennedy incident or the Six-Day War incidents. And it uses snippets and sometimes more of Bernstein's outstanding music and the music of those composers he popularized, like Gustav Mahler. But in focusing so deeply on his relationship with his wife, as well as her initial acceptance and then frustration at his many dalliances with men, something is lost in this story. We never really learn why the son of Jewish immigrants to Boston, his father a beauty supplies manufacturer, became a world-spanning musician, or how his Jewish background influenced his development. Bernstein is treated as a kind of creative comet who gets his big break miraculously at age 25 and never lets go of the spotlight after that. Well, that much is true, but... The movie Maestro does show the conflict between the very public Lenny Bernstein persona, the conductor and performer. He was an excellent pianist, too, and often conducted from the piano bench while playing concertos, and the private composer, alone in his studio writing symphonies and scores. It is an interesting tension throughout the film, although not as fully explored as I wish it had been. Look, Leonard Bernstein deserves an excellent film about him. He was an extraordinary conductor and an outstanding composer. He influenced generations of young musicians to seek to become great at music. I just wish that Bradley Cooper's magnum opus sorry, was a little more focused on the ins and outs of Bernstein's genius and a little less on the domestic complexity of his 30-year marriage and his non-stop lovers. Lots of people have complex romantic lives. Not so many are musical prodigies who sustain their genius over decades like Bernstein, and his Jewishness deserved more than the cursory attention it receives in this film, Maestro. Well, to play us in this morning, here's Bernstein's classic song, Tonight, from West Side Story. By the way, West Side Story was originally going to be about Jewish and Italian gangs in New York, but it was updated to Puerto Rican and white Polish gangs for the show. In my words and in everything I do, nothing else but you ever. And there's nothing for me but Maria. Every sight that I see is Maria. Tony, Always you, every thought I'll ever know. Everywhere I go, you'll be. Tonight, tonight, there's only 
quickly. I'm not afraid. They are strict with me, please. I love you. That was Tonight, in honor of the great Leonard Bernstein. I'm curious what you guys think of the Feld Maestro. Watch it and let me know. Our guest this morning is Rabbi Jeffrey Salkin, an important commentator on the state of Judaism in America today and a friend. His new book, Tikkun Ha'am, Repairing Our People, Israel and the Crisis of Liberal Judaism, is out now at a crucial and highly appropriate time for all of us to read it. Jeff Salkin joins us in just a moment here on Too Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino Del Sol. The soul of Tucson, enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. We are delighted to welcome the two Jewish Rabbi Jeff Sawkin, a distinguished rabbi, author of a number of important books about Judaism and contemporary Judaism and Jewish life today. His new book is called Tikkun Ha'am, Israel and the Crisis of Liberal Judaism, Repairing Our People. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Thanks so much, Sam. It's great to be with you. Jeff, this book came out, and you start with a really important kind of instant analysis, if you will, of the whole, what it means to be past um, October 7th and and how that's impacted American Judaism. Uh, tell us about the motivation, and, and obviously you did not write this whole book in, you know, like a month. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Sam, there's a story that's behind this, of course. The book was ready to go to press on October 7th. October 7th happened. I called the publisher and said those cliched words, Stop the presses. Yeah. I had to rewrite the introduction to reflect what I thought was a new reality. And it is my argument in the introduction that we are now living in a post-October 7th Jewish world, that American Jews now realize perhaps more than ever before that we are part of a people. We realize more than ever before that we need to recalibrate the balance between if I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? Between particularism and universalism, caring for ourselves, caring for all people. I believe that American Jews are going to need to think about, especially those of us on the left, what is the meaning of our progressive alliances. I believe that American Jews are realizing that Jew hatred is a clear and present danger. Once upon a time, we thought it was mostly coming from the right. Now we see it's coming from the cultural left as well. And beyond that, Sam, I think that we're going to be thinking much more about the meaning of higher education, uh, whether higher education definitely means that you have better values. Not so sure about that. Or as I say to a friend of mine the other day, the children of the Enlightenment don't want to know that they are living in the time of the Endarkenment. So 
So we are living in a post-October 7th Jewish world. It was a shock, of course, to everyone. And I think for those who have lived in the Reform Movement and Progressive Judaism and thinking about how the intellectual world was embracing Jews, it's an awakening, isn't it? It's a complete awakening. We lived with a level of naivete that I think we liked having. We lived in a world of kumbaya. I think we lived in a world in which we believed that we could achieve a rapprochement with the Palestinians. I still, in my heart of hearts, believe that a two-state solution is possible, though many will accuse me of being naive. But more than that, I think that this crisis has turned many American Jews inward, if not inward to their own souls, but certainly inward to our communities. Colleagues are telling me that even with enhanced security precautions, that attendance at worship services and programs has gone up. Someone once cynically said that anti-Semitism is bad for the Jews, but it's good for Judaism. In other words, our community has drawn together, and I'm not sure how long that will last, but at the moment it is producing some very interesting results for us. We will talk much more with Rabbi Jeff Salkin about his new book, Tikkun Ha'am, about the American Jewish community, which direction it's going in this post-October 7th world. We come back in a moment here on To Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in the Catalina foothills and especially northwest Tucson, celebrates a great array of services, classes, and events this winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, you and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520-276-5675. Religious school is available for school-aged children or grandchildren. Join us in our fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation and teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Come Friday night at 6.30 p.m. for Shabbat services, always followed by a delicious Oneg Shabbat, or Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. Shabbat morning services, all with me leading them, Rabbi Sam Kohan. You can also go on our Facebook page and watch services, Beit Simcha Tucson, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are offered live and on Zoom. You can access those through the website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. Our wonderful religious school is available in person and also on Zoom. For more information about Beit Simcha to come to services, religious school and Torah text programs, bar and bat mitzvah, confirmation, high school programs, rich array of adult education academy courses taught live and on Zoom, and all of our services in person and on Facebook, go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org, or call 520-276-5675, that's 
520-276-5675. BeitSimcha2Sun.org. Or join us, by the way, tomorrow for our December 25th hike and service in the afternoon, followed by Chinese food and a movie. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, and the fastest-growing Jewish congregation in all of Southern Arizona. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, Kvetch or Kvel, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O, JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. Or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, streaming us from there, downloading us. From the Apple iTunes Store, it's a very popular Jewish podcast, top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, over 200,000 downloads on Podbean and on Spotify. Post a rating, review to Jewish wherever you listen to us. Those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. We talked uh, a time or two ago about the really important fact that nobody seems to care about, that there were large, influential, strong Jewish communities in all of the Arab countries and they were mostly uh, expelled, kicked out, or left uh, because of the tremendous persecution or the, to go to better places. Nobody talks about the exile of all the Jews of the Arab lands and how much they left behind, because they sure left a lot behind. Yeah, and it's not only the Arab lands. It's also Iran, Iran right. which is non-Arab. Sure. It's also Turkey. There were huge, rich important Jewish communities, influential Jewish communities in Turkey and Iran, which there's still a remnant. I and mean, it's, not, it's not accurate to say there's no Jews left, but 98% are gone. Right. And Morocco is, a, is an important case in point because it's so far west that I think many people forget that it's an Arab country. Sometimes people talk about it like the Wild West of the Arab world, like it's right. a little more free and you can do things. And 
Definitely part of the Arab world. First of all, Morocco is a kingdom, and the king and his family have traditionally been extremely protective of Jews. And Jews lived always in a quarter called the Mela, which was very close to the royal palace. Because they were supposedly because they were in the salt trade, and Melach is the word for salt right, and so right, on. Right, right, right. The king gave them a monopoly on the salt trade. In fact, that was a sign of his favor. And they were, in return, very loyal to the king. And this goes back centuries. So one thing many people don't know is that there are like five imperial cities in Morocco, all of which have royal palaces. And the royal family spends at least some time every year in each of those imperial cities and in each of those palatial residences. The royal family just as a good investment, has in recent years spent a boatload of money on restoring Jewish sites like cemeteries, synagogues, schools, which once existed throughout Morocco. And in the major tourist centers, these places still draw lots of Jewish visitors, even to towns that don't have many Jews left. I mean, Fez was a hugely important Jewish community. It has very few Jews left there, but it has a lot of Jewish sites worth seeing. Marrakesh as well. I mean, it has yeah. a tiny Jewish community left, but it was hugely important, and there's a lot to see and do. I, I, I have a long story about buying shofars from the last I shofar maker that. in Morocco, right. and it was right. in Marrakesh, in the old city. And any number of less well-known cities, certainly all the imperial cities, and then some that weren't imperial. Um, and the question is, what's the future there? Well, first of all, a lot of Israelis have origins in Morocco, and there is a particularly Moroccan holiday called Maimuna. Maimuna. At the end of Pesach, yeah. Passover. I've, I've celebrated it many times. We, ha we established it here in Tucson for uh, maybe a decade or so. So Israelis of Moroccan origin feel that they can't really celebrate a real Maimuna anywhere other than in Morocco. Yeah, it's like so, the promised land of Mamuna. They go in growing numbers every year. In Israel, Passover is an eight-day holiday, and they take it off from work or school. I mean, there's everything shut down for the whole duration. So a lot of Israelis buy a package tour for a week to Morocco, and all the five-star hotels throughout the country kosher their kitchen so that they're kosher le Pesach, for all the Israelis. And as a result of this huge business, a lot of tour guides speak at least basic Hebrew. Um, those who specialize in hosting Israelis obviously go beyond basic. But even I've had tour guides there who were just normal Muslims, didn't work with Israeli groups, but knew Israeli tour guides and knew very basic Hebrew. It was like quite shocking to me. So even before the so-called Abraham Accords and all this, there was a a warm and sort of growing relationship between Israel and Morocco. And, you know, maybe this is a beacon of hope that the rest of the Arab world can change, or maybe Morocco is just sui generis, and its history is so different, and its experience of Jews is so different. Um, most Jews didn't leave Morocco until after 1956, um, the Suez crisis, the year of the Suez war. And I don't know, it's kind of a test case because it could go either way. I, I hope it goes to the better, to the, to the good, if you will. Tom, Tom, thanks so much. We'll talk next week. I look forward to it.
It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Two Jewish as a public service. Married for 25 years, Moshe takes a look at his wife, Rachel, one day and says, Honey, 25 years ago, we had a cheap apartment, a cheap car, slept on a sofa bed, watched a 10-inch black and white TV, but I got to sleep every night with a hot 25-year-old woman. Now, today, we have a nice house, a fancy car, a big bed, digital TVs, but I'm sleeping with a 50-year-old woman. It seems to me you're not holding up your side of things. Rachel's a reasonable woman. She says, Moshe, go out, find a hot 25-year-old young woman. I'll make sure that once again you live in a cheap apartment, drive a cheap car, and sleep on a sofa bed. That was the old Jewish joke of the week special feature of Two Jewish, just for you. You should live and be well. And now a word of Torah. This week we complete the story of Joseph and his great father Jacob, also known as Israel, with the final portion of the book of Genesis, Vayachi. It begins with a description of the death of Jacob, and perhaps even more importantly, the final blessings that Jacob gives his many sons. But one of the most interesting aspects of this section is a brief episode in which Joseph, who knows that his father is dying, brings his own two sons, Jacob's grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh to him for a blessing. In keeping with an ongoing theme in Genesis, Jacob blesses the younger son Ephraim in preference to the older son Manasseh. When Joseph tries to correct his dad, Jacob assures him this blessing order is intentional. Both boys will father great tribes, but the younger will exceed the older in accomplishment. We still use this blessing every Friday night when we bless our own sons today, both in temple and at home. In the Bible, we always expect the older child to succeed at a greater level than the younger to receive a a bonus for being firstborn. But repeatedly throughout Genesis, the younger child ends up exceeding the older and receiving a greater portion of the inheritance. It's as if there is a message here. God has a plan that goes beyond the conventions of human society. As Paul Simon once sang, God only knows, God makes his plan, the information unavailable to mortal man. For us, this consistent reversal of the traditional roles teaches a different lesson. In the negative formulation of this, Shakespeare has Caesar say, The fault, dear Brutus, lies not in our stars, but in ourselves. That is, we can't attribute our own failures to birth order, or our horoscope, or even blame our parents. Life happens. But how we respond to it is up to us, not to our birth order. What we can do is control our own actions and our own choices. We each have the ability to shape our own destinies. Like Ephraim, or like Joseph himself, or his own father Jacob, we may be born into less favor and fortune than our siblings. But we can make our own way to success and goodness, and to God, if we work and care and constantly seek holiness and goodness. When we come back in a moment, our guest this morning, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, explains what American Judaism and American Jewish leadership needs to do to fix its current brokenness. Find out when he rejoins us in a moment on Too Jewish. 
We continue with our Two Jewish Update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. In Gaza, the leadership of the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas rejected an Israeli ceasefire offer, saying they will not agree to terms until a pause is already in effect, according to Egyptian intelligence sources. The Israeli offer was reportedly a one-week pause in hostilities in exchange for 40 Israeli hostages. Hamas stated that the Palestinian factions reject any talks about prisoner swaps until after Israel stops fighting. It will not happen, of course. Thus, no pause in the war in the immediate future. In the Baltics, a narrow window is open through December 31st for Lithuanian Holocaust survivors and their descendants to apply for restitution under the terms of a law passed last year. A similar law in Latvia has also taken effect, giving Holocaust survivors from that country the chance to secure one-time payments of about $5,300. For many people, these agreements are not just about money, they're about recognition, said Gideon Taylor, president of the World Jewish Restitution Organization. It's countries coming to terms with the past, acknowledging that there were Jews there, that every house, every building represents an individual story. Both of the Baltic nations contained rich centers of Jewish life and history before World War II. The Nazis, together with their Lithuanian and Latvian collaborators, killed 90% of the 220,000 Jews in Lithuania before the war and 75% of the 95,000 Jews in Latvia. Today, there are about 5,000 Jews living in Lithuania, a little less than 10,000 in Latvia. Both countries were occupied by the Soviet Union during World War II and remained part of the Soviet Union until its dissolution. That in part explains why they were only offering restitution 80 years after their Jews were expropriated, deported, and murdered. As Taylor said, the communist ideology was that they fought against the Nazis and therefore had no responsibility, so there was never any possibility of reparations or compensation for property. And in addition, property was all confiscated by the communist government anyway and belonged to the state. Well, now in Latvia and Lithuania, for the next week at least, some Jews may be able to get some measure of reparations. The director of Gaza's Kamal Adwan Hospital in Jabalia in the Gaza Strip has revealed in an interrogation that his northern Gaza hospital was turned into a military facility under Hamas's control. And at one point, it housed a kidnapped Israeli soldier. In footage published last week by the Shin Bed and the Israel Defense Forces, hospital director Ahmed Kachlot could be seen telling an Israeli interrogator that Hamas had offices inside the hospital and used it as a base for operational activity. According to Kachlot, who said he had been a lieutenant colonel in Hamas since 2010, some 16 members of the hospital staff in Gaza, including doctors, nurses, and paramedics, were actually Hamas operatives serving in the Al-Qassam Brigades, the military wing of the terror organization. He added that several members of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad's Al-Quds Brigades were also employed in the hospital. On December 12, the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry said Israeli forces had entered Kamal Adwan Hospital. The IDF later confirmed that. Over the course of several days, Israeli troops detained some 90 Palestinian operatives inside the hospital and seized numerous weapons caches. 
According to a joint Shinbet and IDF statement on the operation, some of those captured at the hospital had participated in the October 7th massacres in southern Israel, in which 1,200 people were murdered and 240 were taken hostage. Asked about Hamas-Palestinian terrorist operations inside the hospital complex, Kahlo revealed that one Palestinian terrorist Hamas leader and two senior officials had offices inside the hospital. There are places for senior officials. They brought a kidnapped soldier there, he said. There's a designated space for interrogations, internal security, and special security. They all have private phone lines within the hospital. They hide in hospitals because they believe hospitals are a safe place, the Palestinian told the Shin Bet. They will not be harmed if they are inside a hospital. MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and UC Davis, both of which have recently experienced widely publicized episodes of conflict around Israel, are among six new institutions facing U.S. Department of Education investigations. The U.S. Department has indicated it is taking a newly aggressive approach to addressing anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on campus since the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war. It's announcing new investigations at a rapid clip, dramatically increasing the pace of civil rights inquiries that it opens. All of the investigations relate to allegations of mistreatment owing to quote-unquote shared ancestry, but the department does not publicly reveal the incidents or complaints that cause it to open inquiries. None of the latest targets would comment on their investigation's nature. Many said they were not told why they were being investigated. Still, it is nearly certain that at least some of the investigations are related to anti-Semitism. MIT President Sally Kornbluth, who is Jewish, came under heavy criticism at a recent congressional hearing for being unable to say whether calling for the genocide of Jews would violate university code. The school recently decided to partially suspend pro-Palestinian student protesters who staged a disruptive event on campus property. MIT had previously been the only one of the three universities represented at the congressional hearing without an active federal investigation. The Department of Education had previously announced inquiries into Harvard University and the University of Pennsylvania. And UC Davis entered the news in October when a professor, Gemma De Cristo, posted threats to Zionist journalists on social media. One group of people we have easy access to in the U.S. is all these Zionist journalists. Christo wrote on X, formerly Twitter, They have houses with addresses, kids in school. They can fear their bosses, but they should fear us more. The post concluded with emojis of a knife, an axe, and blood drops. A UC Davis spokesperson said the university would not comment on the current status of DeCristo's employment, but the professor's faculty page has been removed from its website. UC Davis is committed to fostering a climate of equity and justice where all can feel welcome and thrive, free of harassment and discrimination. UC Davis is committed to fostering a climate of equity and justice where all can feel welcome and thrive, free of harassment or discrimination, UC Davis spokesperson James Nash said, adding the university would be fully cooperating with the investigation. We take all claims of harassment seriously. The other new active federal investigations are at the University of Illinois at Chicago, Drexel University, and two public school districts, one in Springfield, Illinois, and the other in Chandler, Arizona, outside of Phoenix. 
The school has joined an expanding roster of dozens of active civil rights investigations on campuses across the U.S. since October 7th, including ones involving anti-Semitism at Harvard, Columbia, Rutgers, Penn, and Tulane. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews round the world. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We are delighted to welcome back to Two Jewish our guest this morning, Rabbi Jeff Salkin of prominent congregational and I think national rabbi is probably a good way to put it, uh, author of a number of books, and in particular, his new book, kind of analyzing the state of the American Jewish world, but also um, with some recommendations and some predictions for it, particularly in this post-107 world. We don't call it 107, we call it October 7th, mostly, interestingly. Repairing Our People is what Tikkun Ha'am is about. Uh, kind of reflecting on the future of American, the American Jewish world. You know, so many things have been taking place, and you hit, I think, on all of them extremely accurately in your book. The kind of decline of American Jewish identity, the connection to synagogues diminishing, the kind of private bar bat mitzvah experience epitomized by you know, kind of the, oh, we had a big deal at a hotel and it was great and we didn't even bother with a ceremony kind of experience. Privatization of that, the different ways people become quote-unquote rabbis today, there's a whole lot in here. So what's the most surprising thing you found in putting together the book? You know, Sam, it's interesting. I've been living in this world for my entire career. That's more than 40 years. And if I say that this surprised me. I should say that I should not have been surprised. When we American Jews talk about assimilation, we are mostly talking about an ideology that says that we want to live like Gentiles who are of a higher social class than we are. We're engaging in social climbing. 
what has surprised me over the years is to what extent assimilation is, number one, a done deal. We can live anywhere we want. We can do anything we want to. But what surprised me is that we have assimilated ourselves into American thought patterns and ideological patterns, some of which you actually have already described. Consumerism, individualism, that sense of I get what I want, that sense that I live in an atomized existence. And what has troubled me is that liberal Judaism has not yet sufficiently fought back against those trends. Sometimes I felt, uh, particularly in the reform movement, that we pretended we were leading things when we were really like the band leader who runs around in front of the marching band waving a baton and pretends he's in charge. In other words, we were just following the trends and catching up with them sometimes after the fact. What should we have done or what should we do going forward? I think it's a wonderful image that you've just used. In other words, we followed rather than led. Now, let me be clear. We were leaders in social justice, and perhaps we still are. We certainly were leaders in reforming what worship could look like in ways that were either imitated by or mirrored by other religious groups, but we should have been speaking truth to culture. We did a really good job of speaking truth to power, but we did not speak truth to culture. We did not say that there are certain elements in American life, including anti-intellectualism, that would wind up being toxic to American Judaism. And Reform Judaism was uniquely situated to speak out on this, and we haven't done it yet. Particularly important for Reform Judaism, which is, as you note, good at speaking truth to power and really bad at telling its own people what they ought to do. How do we find a middle ground between what I grew up with, uh, mostly in the conservative movement, with the rabbis telling us, don't intermarry, and you know you need to come to shul more often, and maybe you should keep kosher all the time, to uh, you're all wonderful, but let's fix what's going on in Washington. Where, where's the middle ground there? What do you, where, how do you find a way in between? Well, that's exactly why I think my publishers, Wicked Sun Press, decided that they wanted to give the book a mischievous name. They decided, I think, specifically to name the book Tikkun Ha'am, to rhyme with Tikkun Olam, <laughs> repairing our people right. even before we repair the world. The middle ground is, I think, to foster a sense of obligation and a sense of communal responsibility. I think we allowed choice to overdose, and I think we need to bring back a sense that we are all part of this entity, which is the Jewish people, not just the Jewish individual. And we need to think more and creatively about how to do that. I wonder uh, about the kind of secularized Judaism that the larger Jewish, well, not larger, but the, the non-synagogue Jewish world has cultivated, the federations, Jewish communities, centers, uh, in which you could be Jewish provided you donate uh, and you do a little bit of this and that, or you work out at the J and that makes you Jewish enough. That's not much of a solution in a crisis, is it? Not much in a crisis. I will tell you that since October 7th, I've become less judgmental about how Jews are living their lives, and I'm much more interested in figuring out uh, how they can enhance their lives through a connection to the Jewish people. I will be the first to admit, however, 
that a mere recreational connection, or as some people say, a cultural Jewish connection, is probably not going to be sufficient. And I think we need for synagogues to work much more in league with JCCs and with other secular organizations and create deeper and more powerful meanings for everybody. How should they do that? I mean, they don't, they don't really seem to buy into that, do they? Oh, I think many synagogues actually are doing that. Uh, in fact, I am really inspired, Sam, by some of the startup synagogues like Ikar, uh, that Sharon Browse yeah. is running in hey, Los Angeles. Hey, I passed two Jewish guests a couple of times, by the way. Oh, wonderful. Well, you were smart to have her because I think what she's doing is really powerful stuff. But the, here's the interesting thing. Many of these projects, like Romamu, for example, uh, in New York, or the downtown Minion, or, or places in Chicago, they are happening outside of the traditional Jewish synagogue world. They are entrepreneurial. We need more of that. And I think we need to have investments of money even in making that happen. Where does that money come from? I, I, I agree that there are some really innovative synagogues uh, and they're doing great work. Mine, of course, you know, you have to throw that in. But, of course, uh, so it goes without saying. <coughs> naturally, naturally. But I wonder about the the kind of siloing that you see. You hear about, oh, it, it has to be an all-community project. But th there is certainly funding available for to some degree for synagogues, but there's sure a whole lot that goes into other projects that don't seem to create committed Jews. Is that something that can be redirected? Well, as a matter of fact, I would argue and have argued, in fact, in a recent article talking about how October 7th illustrated the holes in Jewish youth education that we need far more financial investment on the part of high worth individuals and uh, on the part of foundations in synagogue life in particular into supplemental Jewish education. This is a problem that we can fix from the professional end. The challenge will be getting the consumer, and I stress the consumer, to buy into being part of the solution. Money can fix this. Money can make Jewish education into a more prestigious occupation for people. It can incentivize young people through programs to come in. We, we don't have to rely on external synagogue projects to make this happen. We have the ability, and I think we should and we can. In writing your book about the contemporary Jewish world in America. You know, the post-October 7th idea that we're going to see arise, obviously more people started coming to services immediately after October 7th. They wanted to feel close. They wanted to hear what the rabbi had to say about Israel. They wanted to connect with other Jews at that moment. Is that going to just fade? I, I wonder how prominent and permanent that change will be. You know, it's interesting you ask that question. After the Tree of Life horror, the attack on the synagogue on Shabbat morning in October 2018. Yeah, the, the Tree of Life, the Pittsburgh Tree of Life attack, right? There was what I called the Pittsburgh bump. In other words, people really were drawn to coming to synagogue right afterwards, and then it faded. But it faded within a couple of weeks. I don't think that this needs to fade. In fact, I have a different idea. I think that this will be nurtured, and I think people are going to continue to do this. But again, here's where I'm coming from, Sam. It's not going to happen in and of itself. It's going to need 
the Jewish community and the professionals in the community to think creatively and hard about what this era means. In the book, I talk about what happened on the 10th of Av. On the 9th of Av, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. Right. And I talk about the myth of Yavna, of how Yochanan and his followers moved to a coastal city and they recreated Judaism. I think that's what we're looking at now. I think we have to recreate American liberal Judaism. And I stress the liberal part of it, because I actually believe that that's where the changes are going to have to come. The paradox is that we once thought that orthodoxy was going to disappear. It hasn't disappeared. It's still here. It's, it's still what we do. It's still an important part of American Jewish life. It's grown, in fact, in many places. I think right now we have to really focus on creating meaningful environments for liberal Jews. The prevalence of people becoming rabbis in sort of non-traditional seminaries has, uh, I I, th- I think there's five people here in Tucson that are called rabbi now. I have no idea where they got their smicha or what they know. It's become kind of, I don't know, epidemic or something. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? I, I might lose friends in saying <laughs> this. I know some very fine people who have studied uh, in these online seminaries. In some cases, it's because these are second career people who cannot manipulate uh, their family lives into doing what the traditional seminaries are interested in. I'm not sure it's a good thing, because I think there needs to be a set of communal standards, and I want that to exist in the American Jewish world. I want there to be a common currency, as it were, of rabbinic training, I think everyone should enter the conversation saying that there is a common, there's a common vocabulary, if not a common curriculum. I think the Jewish community deserves to know who's serving them, and it deserves to know that those people have learned from the greatest possible scholars. Look, I'm, I'm thinking of your, I'm thinking about your grandfather, okay? I'm thinking about your father. These were first class scholars, and I'm not saying that just to flatter you. Uh, these were people who had serious scholarly credentials, and I think that's what the American Jewish community needs. I also think it's what we deserve. I, it, it's flattering, but I always call myself Chometz Ben Yain, uh, which is the Hebrew for wine vinegar, but it means vinegar out of wine. So you could be descended from really good stuff and not really rise to that level, too. So. Um, um, you still have time. <laughs> Jeff, thank you for a great visit here on Two Jewish. Uh, the book is terrific. I think everybody should read it. It's contemporary, but it's extremely important. Uh, where can people find it, and where can people find out more about you? Well, they can find it on Amazon.com. It's, the book is called Tikkun Ha'am, Repairing Our People, Israel and the Crisis of Liberal Judaism. And when I say Israel, I'm saying the following— I don't only mean the state of Israel. I mean Israel, Am Yisrael, the Jewish people. I also have a podcast, and I have a regular column on religionnews.com. I am the creator of Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, (laughs) religionnews.com. And and, uh, with or without a twist, actually, I suppose. (laughs) People are surprised that I've never actually had a martini. But I like the idea that Judaism... And religion should shake us and stir us. I love it. 
Jeff, thanks so much. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jews and Me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Marcia Ryman-Sells, author of At Vitoria, a novel based in a true story of a Spanish community that kept faith with its expelled Jews for five centuries. Really interesting story. Don't miss it. And join us at Congregation Beit Simcha tomorrow for our December 25th hike and service and Chinese food in a movie and every Friday night for services at 6.30 p.m. with Oneg Shabbat to follow. Saturday morning, too, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah Reading and Kiddush, live in person and on our Facebook page. Our play out today comes from, well, Leonard Bernstein's Candide, his epic song, Make Our Garden Grow. My friends, may you have a Shavuot of a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of justice and of peace. Some girls make wonderful jivers. Some girls can hit a high seat. Some girls make good taxi drivers. Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.